the guy I know who is now building and other guys I know who now have 16, who have 30 unit buildings, 40 unit buildings, they started with the small one. They flipped that single family. They flipped that two unit, took that cash and put it into the big build. I get what they're saying, but you got to just, if the profits and numbers are there, just be taking a run. Welcome to the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show, a community for real estate investors to learn, network, and grow. Be sure to join the investnest.com and start learning and earning today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. As always, I'm your host, Travis Murphy. And of course, we've got another great invest guest joining us this week. Uh, this is an awesome interview. I think you guys are really going to get a kick out of it. Um, Angelo, Angelo Martucci is going to join us uh, and talk to us about what he does with real estate. He brings a very interesting perspective um, as his background is a, an appraiser. So he's an appraiser and a real estate investor. He's got a ton of experience and a ton of knowledge. So you guys, I think you're really going to get a lot out of this interview. But before we start that, I want to remind everyone listening to please hit the subscribe button. And if you're enjoying the podcast so far, leaving a review and rating really helps us out. We release our podcasts every Wednesday morning, and we have a guest come on who's a real estate investor to talk to us about their real estate investing journey. So be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of our podcasts. And again, leaving a review and rating definitely helps us out. You can also follow along with our social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Invest Nest. And of course, check out theinvestnest.com. It's an online community for real estate investors. You can create a free profile. Uh, network with other investors and we've got a ton of resources on the website and a lot of new features coming out very soon so stay tuned for that all right and now it's time to get started with the show all right and now it's time to welcome our invest guest of the week angelo martucci is going to be joining us and he can be found on instagram at real estate underscore info angelo is a real estate appraiser turned investor i believe out of jersey but he's going to tell us a little bit more about his story in just a minute angelo welcome to the invest nest What's going on, man? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the show. You've got a lot of good stuff I'm anxious to get into with you. But first, how's things going? Is uh, 2021 off to a good start for you? Good, good. Yeah, man. It's, it's been really good because, you know, 2020 started good. And then obviously we could get into a whole nother podcast about the pandemic. But I just knew as it was winding down that I was setting up things for this year. And it's uh, I cannot complain. I mean, we're, we're off to a good start on both businesses, you know. Awesome. Really awesome. Yeah, I know. I know the whole pandemic presented a bunch of challenges for people in all sorts of capacity, whether it was real estate, the real estate businesses, contracting or, or anything really. But, you know, 2021, hopefully everybody's looking towards to be a you know a better year. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear you're on off to a good start. I've looked into your background. I've seen what you're doing on, on um, Instagram and you got like a wealth of knowledge. It seems like you've been into the real estate industry in some form or fashion for a very long time. I think like 15 years or something, I think you said. Yeah. Can you let our audience know a little bit about yourself? Just generally speaking, what you know, can you tell us about yourself and what you do with real estate? Yeah. So the backstory dates back to 2002, believe it or not. I was like right out of high school, practically in place at community college. And at the time, one of my professors was heavy into real estate. All he talked about, like, oh, that's how you make it, blah, 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 blah. He's like, you'll make more in the salary. So I started digging up information, reading about it, staying on top of it. So I wanted to be an investor at first. I didn't want to, you know. So then as time went by, like, you can't invest when you're that age. You don't have money, you're in school, whatever. 
I tried, it didn't work. You know, you're reading your stand on top of it. So it wasn't really until 2004 that I was actually like halfway through county college about to go to a four-year school. And I actually ran into somebody I knew that did mortgages and was doing really well with it. And I was like, listen, I really want to get into the appraisal industry. I'm like, I want to be an investor, blah, blah, blah. Give me a job doing mortgages. And he's like, I don't know, man. He's like, I don't think, I don't know if you're going to like it. You're going to be behind a desk. He goes, it, it could be obnoxious. I got the perfect job. for you. He's like, do you ever hear of real estate appraisal? You can learn the ins and outs. You're out in the field. You work from home. You're on the road. You're never in one place. I'm like, dude, that sounds unbelievable. So I, I jumped on top of it. This is back in 04. I took all the classes and then started actually doing it full time in 05. And that's when the real estate market was just taking off. It was just going crazy. And then 06. And then we're kind of repeating that right now with the values. So that's where it started. Yeah, and once you're in real estate, in, in the industry, even as not as an investor, you kind of get pulled in even more. I think a lot of people, whether it's in you know real estate agents or appraisers or lenders, you know the industry itself outside of investing is it's kind of like the wild west of business in a sense because there's so many different pieces and there's so many different ways of doing things, but everybody has to work together to make it work. And I can imagine, like I could have a whole nother podcast with you just about the whole appraisal background and what you bring and what that's provided to you as far as helping you become an investor and a successful investor. And I want to touch on some of that in this interview as well. But before we get into too many details of the appraisal end of aspects of things, like how did you say you tried to become an investor initially and then you found yourself working as an appraiser, at what point did you become an investor? And how did that happen? What kind of, aside from the professor that really talked about it and got you inspired, what was it that pushed you into it and made you want to do it for yourself? It was always hovering around the background. You know, at, at first, when I looked into it, I looked about, I looked at the flipping a house with, with a relative and it just, it didn't go anywhere. It just didn't go anywhere. This is back before I even had a job, money, whatever. So when I got in 04, uh, like 05, I was like, let me just learn this business down to the science before I do anything. Because obviously real estate's a lot. And at that point, I was obviously scared to get involved with anything, you know, because I was young. I didn't, I didn't know anything, you know, never owned a home before, you know, I was 22 at the time, whatever. So, so when I became an appraiser, it actually worked out because I wasn't getting much work. The company I was with, you're, ba you're paid a, a fee split. So you're only getting paid when you're doing deals, you know, when you're doing appraisals. So my mentor at the time was, you know, took me on. He's like, listen, I got work. I'll give you the work nobody wants. So it was either like 50 miles out West on a Pennsylvania border, or it was like the middle of like, North New Jersey, run down three, four unit building. And I took it all. And it was a smarter, the best thing I could have done because by learning those multi units, I started doing them and I started doing them for investors. And like, come on, you, you got to, you could do this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I, I just, I don't know what to do. And some of them were rented out to section eight. So I kind of like, I put it, I, I learned a little bit, put it on the back burner, market crash comes and everybody's like, don't buy real estate. Don't buy any real estate. Don't do anything. So at that point, I'm like, shit, I guess think they're right. The market's crashing. So now we're at the bottom. It's 2009 and 10. I'm doing appraisals on homes and the values are 50% less than the prior appraisals that were done or the sales prices. I'm seeing foreclosure, short sales, bank sales, all this stuff come on the market. I'm like, oh my God, these numbers are unbelievable. I got to invest. I have to do something. But you would get advice from people that make you're crazy, don't do it, you need cash. It was all negativity. So like once you get the negativity in your head, you just you're like, yeah, I guess I guess they're right. Fuck it, I'm not gonna do it. So you put that off to the side. So now I, I put that aside and now 
it was in 2009 or 10, the appraisal company I worked for, no, it was two, earlier, 2009, appraisal company I worked for also owned a huge real estate school. And he's like, listen, times are tough. Guys aren't making money. I got these people coming in to talk to you about another way you might be able to make money. So I'm like, all right, let's see what this is. So he calls a mandatory meeting. Guys, I want all the appraisers to come in. Agency knew everybody because nobody was making money. He had this organization come in. And I don't want to mention their name because they're no longer in business, but they were a, a real estate investment course. And you would sign up and it was almost like a Ponzi scheme. A lot of the stuff they, they, they were saying made sense. And what they said and what my supervisor was saying, because he went up and talked, he had them come in because I think they actually paid him to do this, this thing at his school. What he said, he goes, this market crashed so bad. He goes, I've been doing it since frigging he got out of the Korean War. I mean, this guy was really in-depth that I learned from. And he goes, I've never seen anything like this, and you probably will never see an opportunity like this for the rest of your life. So if you can get your hands on foreclosures, do it and do it quickly. So now I'm like, how am I going to buy a foreclosure? So long story short, they run this whole class. At the end of the class, the guys were like, yeah, it's like five grand to sign. It was so astronomical that by the time you got done taking the classes, you could have bought a house at that time all cash. So I'm like, dude, you know, I love my mentor, but I'm a little bit like, all right, he should have kind of known this. Like we're appraisers. We just got to take, read a couple of books, take a couple of classes. We don't need to do all that because we see the numbers ourselves. So I'm like, this is insane that the company that did that, they end up going under. So at the start, I kind of knew that a lot of those big companies, you got to that do those courses. You got to be really careful because they'll just shake the money out of you, you know? So that's where I really started learning, asking people, but I just wouldn't pull the trigger, wouldn't pull the trigger. 2012 comes, I buy a short sale, but I was kind of like, oh, is this going to be my residence? Is it going to be a flip? I was kind of like in the air about it. I started working on it, working on it, working on it. And I end up freaking meeting other investors, networking more. I got so, my mindset was so into the investing because I started doing appraisals for hard money lenders and seeing what they're making. And I love the strategy and I just like doing it. Then I'm like this primary residence of mine. I'm like, yo, I'm putting on a market. I'm selling it. Done. I'm going to be an investor. Put on a market, sold it. And that, that's, that was like 14, 2015. 2013, I closed on it. But 2015, that's when I was like, yo, I'm 100%. And that's when you officially became a real estate investor. Yeah. You were plugged into the industry. You saw that's really what the Wild West was back then. People were making loans with stated income. Everybody was getting qualified for mortgages. Everybody in the real estate industry was busy. Realtors were making money. They were scrambling, trying to you know, kind of like now, like you said, appraisers, I'm sure were busier than hell because they got to try and keep up with all the loans everybody was making. Unfortunately, a lot of those loans turned out to be bad. And then boom, poof, it all collapses like a house of cards, you know, but, yeah. you know, it sounds like you were on at a point in your career where you weren't quite ready or you weren't quite there to start doing the investing yourself, but you had gained all this knowledge and all this information and seeing it from a different perspective. You mentioned the numbers, which are so incredibly important in real estate investing. They're not just how much you're buying it for, but what your improvement costs are, if, you, if there are any. And then more importantly, we as investors refer to as the ARV, you know, the after repair value. Like that's a critical component when you're analyzing a deal. And by the fact of you working as an appraiser in the real estate industry for so long, like I imagine that you can just hammer down and drill down on, a, an, on an accurate ARV, which... I mean, that has got to be super helpful with your own investments, but I'm glad it sounds like at some point you were able to pull that trigger because you're right. At that point in time, real estate was pennies on the dollar. 
and all the people that were telling you not to invest and don't do it, it's a bad idea. You're looking at the numbers saying, I did an appraisal on this same house two years ago and it was twice as much, you know? So I'm glad that you were able to recognize that from all the experience that you have and take advantage of it, start buying. So that's yeah. all, yeah, that's awesome. I use an example all the time. I'll never forget. I, I think I used it in my other first podcast. Did an appraisal at one point in 06, they were doing 100% financing for non-owner occupied rental properties. I did a four unit, sorry, three unit, three unit house in Elizabeth, New Jersey, 100% financing. The appraisal comes in at like 450. Mark is screaming, 2006. I have a good memory. Three years later, I'm on the MLS because I'm scared because I'm an MLS member. I could scan it when I saw a crashing. I'm I'm scanning through all these neighborhoods like oh this is nuts. The house was on a market. I appraised it for 450. It was on a market three years later for 225 as a foreclosure. Yeah, yeah, it's split in half, and that wasn't even. I mean, like I said, like the first one of my first bird deals. I bought it for forty-eight thousand dollars. The prior person bought it for like I think three forty. Yeah. So I bought it for almost three hundred thousand dollars less than he did. I mean, that's how crazy, how hard the crash was, especially on the multi-units in urban areas. For our audience out there, listen. I mean, what Angel is talking about is somebody bought a four-unit in two thousand six. They didn't put any money down. The bank financed 100% of the loan. We talk about now in real estate on this podcast, real estate investing, you know, OPM or other people's money or saving up money to put as a down payment or trying to utilize a bird strategy so that you can invest with little or no of your own money. You didn't have to do any of that back then. They would just give you a loan for 100% of the purchase price. And that purchase price was higher than it probably should have been. I mean, they were handing out, they were handing out loans left and right back then, but that was, that was part of the problem. Yep. It makes more sense now, because I know that you've done burrs, you've got a rental portfolio I'm going to talk to you about in a minute. You've done flips. It, it makes so much more sense now because all of the experience that you must have gained through that time and doing appraisals, not just the ability to run the numbers and analyze the, the deal in the ARV, but the network that you, I'm sure you were getting plugged into during that time period. And I'm not talking just about other realtors or lenders. I'm talking about people that were capitalizing when the crash did come and taking advantage of all these deals. You know, you mentioned a mentor. I imagine from there, that network only spread. I mean, did you, you were getting, you must have been getting plugged into the right circles during that time to kind of help you take what you've already learned and know and, and take advantage of the opportunities that would come your way from those circles. Yeah. So back in 05, 06, it's such a crazy business, man. I remember the first, I was doing appraisals for guys that were, they were flipping and, and they were buying rentals. I had one guy that told me, he goes, yo, I, I, I'm a convicted felon. He goes, so I make my money. He goes, I got the money. I know the, I know the industry. He goes, I know my neighborhood. And he was, he had multiple rental properties and he was doing well with it. So you could literally be, you know, a convicted felon all the way up to a frigging uh, 10 graduate degrees in uh, Ivy League schools, you, you know, and investors come in all different shapes and sizes and formats. There's no one way. You just got to learn your market, learn your neighborhood. So I picked up a little off of them, picked up a little bit over years, but I'd say in 2014, 2000, so, so the market crashes in 2009, 10. Because of the foreclosure laws in New Jersey, because we are considered a jur, it's called a, um, oh God, I can't remember the name. I have to pull it up. 
but our foreclosure laws take a very long time. So a lot of these homes weren't hitting the market until 2013, 2014. So I started doing appraisals on foreclosed REO properties. It was almost all my work at one time in 2013, 14. They all start hitting the market hard. And that's where we really started seeing investors come in. And I started also doing it on the other end where they're buying or flipping. And I would always talk to the investors, yo, how'd you, how much you put into this? What did you do? Because I'm picking their brain. So I linked up with like one investor a little bit and then another investor who was really big, really nice guy. And he taught me, he's like, yo, anything you want to ask me, ask me. We were about the same age, you know? So he was, I was, I was constantly asking him questions, but at the same time, don't get it twisted. It wasn't just pure luck. I joined the local RIA, really good real estate investment group. They were close by a group of guys. I found one RIA that wasn't, it wasn't really helpful, but then I went to another one that was serious. I mean, everybody in there was buying, flipping, building. And I, I would go to the course, like, listen, you got a friggin', you got to hustle. Like you can't just be like, read one book, and call it a day. I mean, I had all the knowledge for those years and I was going to the RIAs and that's where I learned a lot. And then finally I was able to put all the pieces together, met my hard money lender at a RIA. My hard money lender ended up being my mentor's hard money lender. So I'm like, yo, I'm fucking using them. I ain't going in. I mean, you know what I mean? So you start seeing, once you start getting involved, the circle starts getting smaller. And that's what you have to do. Put yourself out there. Talk to people at the RIAs. Study, read this. You know, there's a lot of pieces to it, definitely, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. 100%. I mean, I, I couldn't say it better. I talk about it on the podcast all the time. For people that are trying to get started in it, you know, in real estate investing, they might be listening to podcasts like this or reading books, you know, but you got to get out and start just meeting people. And the best place to do it are like places online, like Instagram or the Invest Nest. But really getting out to a, a local real estate meetup group, I mean, they're not all equal. Like you said, the first one might not have been as good as the second one, but the, if you get in the right one, that's the circle you need to be in. The people, the players are there, the pieces are there that you are going to need in order to become a real estate investor or at least a successful one. You know, and the other thing that you mentioned a minute ago too about like, you know, the money and not having the money and what have you. That's the cool thing I think about real estate investing that gets everybody so fired up is that there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, back in the early 2000s, everybody was just getting loans. So it was it was a little bit different. But now the lending has become a little bit more difficult because they want people to have to put down certain amounts of money. But that doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate if you don't have money. There are hard money lenders. There, you go to these real estate meetups, there might be other people that have full-time careers and don't have time to invest in real estate, but they might have some cash. You know, and if you're willing to go out there and beat feet and do the do the, the dirty work, you know, that's that can be a partnership right there. So a lot of good stuff, what you just said. And, you know, the last thing I'll just say before we move on to the next question is, you know, you just said it's not reading a book and, and calling it a day. You, it, it is a hustle. It's a grind. I mean, it's not purely passive income unless you're investing in like a syndication or you're investing in somebody else's deal. But, you know, whether it's a buy and hold or a fur, I mean, there's a lot of work that's going to go into it. And there's a lot of challenges. So you got to, I mean, you got to get out and make it happen to an extent. You can do it if you arm yourself with the information and the knowledge. It can be easy, but it's still, you still got to go out and make it happen. You got to take the action, take the steps and make it happen. But if you do it all, you can, you can find success. Yeah. And I mean, listen, one piece of advice that I talking about a lot recently is nobody's a complete expert. There is so much to look, put it this way. I talked to you. I've been in appraisal for a long time. I have my portfolio done a couple of flips. I'm like, I want to learn about apartment buildings. That's a whole nother animal. I started buying books on apartment buildings. I, I bought one book is it gets very, 
the way the guy breaks it down is very, very complicated because what he does is he does value add. So he buys them, does a value add, then flips them. So even reading this book for myself, I'm like, this, this is complicated. It, that's the one good thing about it. It's endless. You could do it till you're 100 years old. You'll never learn everything yeah. because markets change, people change. I mean, I just saw a building they're putting up in Jersey City. They're called micro units or something. They're like, they bought the land. It's all micro apartments stacked on top of each other and they get the pilot program. I mean, it's endless yeah. what's out there. You have no idea. Yeah. And for the people that are like not starting because they think they need to learn more, you're never going to learn, like you just said, everything. The the, the yeah. way you're going to learn the most is by do actually doing it. And the things that you're, I always say this too, the things that you're most likely worried about that's preventing you from doing an investment deal isn't going to be an issue when you actually go do it. It's going to be something totally off the radar that you weren't expecting that's going to trip you up. But I mean, that's all just part of it. I mean, getting going through it and Kind of learning by trial is is the best way and it's never ending and there's you can get creative there's so many different ways of doing it there's new ways that are being developed all the time i mean i can't imagine some of the stories you must have from back in those early days of of doing appraisals um and it, and then now it's i mean it's kind of happening again now to an extent but i i have to imagine you got some pretty wild stories but i want to ask you about your portfolio and where you are now so i guess you started did you start by doing flips initially or was it a burr so what happened was I wanted to do a flip and I realistically want to own rental property because the appraisal business is, it's very time consuming. It's very tough. I mean, you can work a hundred hours a week. So it really hit me in 2014 when I was doing a lot of that work, bro, I was working, it was out of control how much I was working. It was the dead of winter. I was doing all these vacant homes. I'm out there up to my frigging, up to my waist in snow. And I'm like, I need some type of residual income. So I'm like, why don't I buy a rental property? But I'm like, I got to put 20% down. I got to do that. You know, you, you just, you don't know which, even all I knew, I still didn't know investing was a whole nother animal. So what happened was I then started looking into flips. It turns out I get a call one day, get a bank, uh, a bank calls me. So like, listen, we have an investor. He needs a uh, 13, he needs an appraisal on 13 of his properties. 13 fucking properties. Who owns 13 multifamily? So I couldn't do all of them. I, could, I was like, I'll take half of them. I take half of them, get the guy on the phone or the kid on the phone, start talking to him. I'm like, yeah, what, what do you do? He goes, come down here, do the appraisal, meet in person. I'll start showing you what I'll do. I'll give you a little overview. So I go down there, really, this is my one of my mentors, broke it down like a science. He had the whole thing with the bird deal. And he goes, you pull your money out, move on to the next, and you keep the ball going. So what happened was I was so, I'm like, oh my God, I got to do this. I was so anxious. At the time, I was looking to get a bird deal on a multifamily. A lot of investors were out there doing it. This is back in 15. It was competitive. So I'm like, listen, if I can't do a bird deal, I'll just do a flip. If a flip comes up, I'll do the flip, build up more money. And then, so that's what I did. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't find a multi-bird deal. Did a flip, home start coming on, bird deals, multi-bird deals. I didn't have the money because my money was in a flip. So I did my first flip, pull my money out, and then use that to break it into one. And then the next one, the boom, boom, right there. And then from there, you're off to the races. Yeah, and then you're off to the races. So that that's where I really saw the power of doing the bird deals because you're not saving the 20%, putting it down and sitting there and waiting for it to build up. You're actually, you're, you're putting your money in, you're pulling it out, injecting it into the next, pulling out. But now those deals aren't really deals anymore. They're so high. People are overbidding so much for them that they're leaving their money in them. Then under some circumstances, they might be better off just buying a house with 20% down. It's turnkey, home inspection, and you know, you know, you don't have to do anything. 
So it, we're in a very, very weird market. Yeah. Now, and I want to I want to get to that with you because that's I, I think we need to talk about that. But real quickly, back to that burst. So the great thing, like you said, you realize is that you're able to recycle that same capital. So you you know you had your job, you're working, you're saving money. You do a flip, you sell it, you make some money. So now you got this little pile of cash. I'm guessing the beauty yeah. about the burr is that if you can do it successfully and you can pull it off, you're able to pull all that that pile of money back out of the deal to then just go repeat it. It's the last R in the burr, the repeat that is so powerful. Can you kind of explain and break down the burr process to our audience? And I don't know if you maybe have an example of a property that you burr, you could kind of talk us through that would kind of break it down for people that might not be as familiar with the whole burr, burr strategy. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my my first example. So my my very first one came on a market and I was like calling the agent, doesn't answer because I saw it on the MLS. So I it got so competitive that you couldn't even use a buyer's agent. And I had MLS access, so I was calling these people directly. They weren't even picking up. Think about it; they're a listing agent, so they're getting both sides. So I call this guy's not answering the phone. House is under contract. A month later, I go back on, comes back. I email him. I go, hey, what's going on? So this property, I'm very interested in buying it. It's back on the market. He goes, yeah, it's back on the market. The buyer pulled out. So what I did was, this one was like, oh, I used, this one was actually crazy because I didn't really even use my own money because I had a small business. At the time, Capital One, I think one of the banks, they still, they were allowing lines of credit. So I took out a $50,000 yep. line of credit. So I realistically didn't use any of my own money, put that down to buy the house for $48,000, whatever, bought the house. I knew as an appraiser, a carbon copy, take a carbon copy, exact version of that house, fully renovated, was worth over 200. So you got 48,000, you got 200. The construction budget, I did, I did, and I signed a contract with a construction company. That, that's construction, that could be a whole nother class was $85,000 to do the construction. So I'm like, I'm buying it for 48. So say 50, hypothetically 50 plus 85, you're into this thing for, I don't even know what is that, 135,000 or whatever? Yep. 135 and it's worth 225. And that's where I'm like, wow, this is how this whole thing works out. And don't get it twisted. The first neighborhood I went into was, was it was rough. I mean, we have metal plates on the windows. Uh, empty building security, uh, you know, the, the, the doors, windows, everything. So while this is getting done, you have to keep the property secure from people breaking in, stealing stuff, crackheads, all that stuff. So it was definitely a little, uh, that that's a whole other uh, uh, stress to it. But the numbers, the numbers were there. And that's what I did. So I bought it for the for whatever 50 in for 135 doing cash out refinance. When I refinanced, they refinanced 75%. So I, when I was all said and done, I ended up leaving a thousand dollars in the deal. Okay. But the property was profiting 900 a month. So what kind of return on investment is that? Do yeah. the math. So technically did I put up a lot of time? Yes. But I put up a thousand dollars and I'm making, I was averaging like 900 a month. So technically you're clear. That's after all expenses. You're clearing $10,000 a year on a thousand dollars. Yeah. That's a good investment. <laughs> return on investment. Yeah. So is. because I left only left a thousand dollars in it, it was, um, you know, I got most of my money out of, out of it. So I refinanced, I put up the money, refinanced, left a thousand out, took that money out of the refinance, put it into the next one. The next one, I got everything out of it. My mentor was so good at this because he owns a construction company. He was able to get all his money out and then some. So he'd be able to get all the money out plus like 10, 20,000 cash put in his pocket. Yeah, because he's saving the margin on the rehab cost. 
Yep. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, you know, what Angelo just basically was breaking down was how that burn process works is you put up, you know, you use the line of credit in order to fund it. And I guess the other part for the improvement cost is you use hard money for that. So it was a combination of your line of credit and then your hard money. Yeah. So yeah, if you know all the numbers, you factor all that in and you, you know, you having that ability to really fine tune that ARV when it's all done, you kind of know what's going to most likely appraise for. That's a, that's a little helpful, I'd say. But you know, the fact that what Angelo did was he used his line of credit, the hard money loan, funded the whole deal, knowing that when it was all done and, re and complete, it was only, it was going to be less than 75% of the value of what it's appraised for his cost. So what allowed that allows them to do is then go to a bank and do a cash out refi. They're going to refinance it based on the appraised value. And just like if you wanted to go buy a home right now, let's just say you have to put an investment property, you have to put 25% down. Well, that is really is another way of saying that the bank will only loan 75%. You don't know, you know, it's really the fact that the bank is only going to put up 75% of the value of the property. So you're kind of doing it in reverse. And what ended up happening with as in Angelo's case is when he's all said and done, he's only in it for 75% of the 200,000 that it's worth or whatever. So then when it appraises, the bank says, yeah, we'll give you the 75% cash out refi. You recoup the money, you pay off your hard money lender, you pay off your line of credit. And then like you said, you left about a thousand bucks in it. You do the math on that return of your cash flow. You're not even talking about your principal reduction, any appreciation and that might be coming in. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really when you start seeing you know, the benefits of investing in real estate. And uh, so now I guess you, you're mostly doing buy and hold either whether burr or not. Yeah, so I'm, that's what I'm doing, man. You just got, you built it up. I, you know, I nailed on it. Listen, now, once you do those first couple of burrs, it, it, listen, if you have to, buying a house with 25% down is still, listen, it's still an option. Listen, for some people, there's not many bird deals out there. I mean, it, it, all of our foreclosures got taken up in New Jersey. A lot of them got taken up, but you still have estate sales, still, still have other stuff. So you could always use the other strategy of save your money and put the 25% down or borrow some money from somebody. So there's different strategies. One thing I want to touch on, which you could go different routes with this, a whole nother class we could go over that I want to get into is financing. Yeah. Okay. Thank God I have good credit. At the time, I was going to go to a non-QM lender. Are you familiar with non-QM? Non-QM lenders are 100%. It's almost like hard money for a landlord. Like they just look at the rent roll. They don't give a fuck about anything else. Excuse my language. They look at the rent roll, run your credit a little bit, and that's it. They're, they'll cash you out. They'll do everything, but their interest rates are a lot higher. Yeah. You're paying like 7%. So when I was going to refinance that first property, I had somebody like, yo, we'll do an 80% cash out refinance. Um, you don't even need to rent it out. You don't need to do anything. Um, but our rate's going to be, I think they were at 7%, mm -hmm. or 7 or 7.1. I went to a portfolio lender, okay? Well, don't get it confused with, we don't want to get confused with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, because I don't, I hate them. I hope, I hope I'm not bad-mouthing them. All that government shit, I want nothing to do with. I went to a small portfolio bank that I met through another investor. This other investor I met while I was doing an appraisal, I was like, yo, I got this bank, they're unbelievable. They work with landlords, they understand the business. You open up a bank account, build a small relationship. This other bank offered me, so, that first bank, the non-QM lender, non-QM, it's you can look them up online. I'm sure I don't want to repeat the names, get in trouble. They were at 7.1% and at 80%. They'll cash out. This portfolio bank's like, listen, we'll only do 75%, but your interest rate's going to be 3.2%. Open up a bank account. And guess what I did? I opened up a bank account. My cash flow was substantially more. 
I had a I paid a half point in the front, a half a point at 3.2% interest. Amortized alone, I paid down so much principal by doing that. And I built a relationship with them. So guess what? On the next bird deal, they're like, yo, let's do it. Boom. They catch me out on the next bird deal. So I built a relationship with them because of that. Small portfolio lenders that have like two branches, three branches, their state state banks are the best. I learned this reading a book. Um, one of my books I recommend is called the Section 8 Bible. Read this book. These guys are crazy. They're from Philly. They were in the Section 8 game before anybody. In fact, this is going back, back in the day. I read this book when I first started doing it, and they they were they mentioned a lot about portfolio small lenders going to them for refinance. So if you're hesitant, build up a relationship. I mean, it helps because you have no idea how much it helps. Points you'll save a fortune yeah. just in a point alone. Yeah, and then on the back, on the flip side, the back end that's saving you on your cash flow. That's helping you with your principal pay down, like you said. And you're right. We could go have a whole other podcast on the different types of financing. But just real quickly, since you put it out there. For people that are maybe don't not quite following, you know, hard money are people that are making kind of private notes basically, and they have high points and fees, but they'll lend more so on the deal itself. If the numbers work and it looks like it's the math checks out and they trust that or they believe in you that you have the ability to do it, then they'll fund the loan. They're, they're going to underwrite it and make sure, you know, it's realistic. And then they got to believe that you have the capability of doing it, but it's not really about your credit and things like that. But to find an investor loan, there's people out there, the, the non-QR loans you refer to them as, there's people that make like investor loans or companies that make loans specific to investors, but it's the same thing. They're going to fee you to death. They're going to point you to death, but it's it's based on the investment property. And if it cash flows, they'll fund it, but they're going to try and suck as much of that cash flow out as they can. Yep. Portfolio loans are basically not government issued or government regulated. They're all regulated, but they're not like government backed loans like Fannie or Freddie. These are what you hear a lot of times on podcasts or reading in books is a local lender, right? It's like a small, like you said, one or two branch bank. They're making the loans themselves. So they're underwriting it based on their criteria that makes them comfortable. If that checks out, if they're comfortable with it, then they make the loan based on their decision. They're not following a government mandated checklist that has to be right, right. checked off. But what that does is it allows people to make get loans that might be more difficult going through the regulated route but not have to get feed to death or eat into your profits or your cash flow like you would with like a, one of these other investment loan makers. So just wanted to break that down real quick. That's a good breakdown right there. But right now I want to ask exactly. you about section eight, because that gets a bad rap sometimes. I mean, people, I think hear that and they think it's, you know, you're going to be dealing with problems and headaches and stuff. What, what's your opinion on section eight tenants and why, why did you decide to go that route? I was always told ever since I, I mentioned investing in rental property from day one, people are like, you're out of your fucking mind. They're going to destroy your property. They're going to burn it down. They're not going to pay the rent. You can't get them out. There's all these theories. I was talking to my landscaper last year. He goes, yeah, you know, you can't evict people in the state of New Jersey during the winter months because of this. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? We just did an eviction. And like, Where do you hear this shit from? So there's so much negative connotation. But when I was doing the appraisals in the inner cities, a lot of these landlords are like, oh, it's Section 8. I'm guaranteed the money. He goes, there's no dispute. If there's a problem, I'll call their caseworker. Like, it's, it's, they're going to be strict with all the paperwork and stuff. But once they're in there, that's, that, that's a federal direct deposit every single month. So there's, there's such a negative connotation. Yeah, you might get that person here or there that's a pain in the ass. So, you know, I have one person that's probably, I don't know, she's using crack and doing a prostitute, but she's paying. So I don't, I can't get involved with that. But I have Section 8 tenants that their apartments are so clean, you could eat off the floor. 
<laughs> you can eat off the floors. Yeah. And they're and you can they're have you can have a headache tenant that's not Section Eight too. I mean that that does not only apply to somebody that's on Section Eight. I mean, regular tenants can be doing God knows what, destroying your property and be a. And the difference is they could be a pain ass to get the money out of. Whereas Section Eight, you're like you mentioned before, I think it might have been off air we were talking, but the Section Eight is actually like your protection. Oh my God, it's a protection. As long as you you pass the inspections, you get the tenants in there. Now you're moving. You follow the protocols. They're going to come once a year to do an inspection. If the tenants call for any repairs, make sure the repairs are taken care of. Uh, get on top of them. You can't wait. You know what I mean? Uh, they they 1099 you at the end of the year. And it, it's in some markets, the Section 8 pays more than a market rent. Now, we're in a different, we're, we're, we're in a bubble right now. So now, where my first Section 8 units are, the market's paying a lot more. So that's why some of them are market tenants, but we have to screen the shit out of them. But I, I, and I don't even want to go off into the whole moratorium and the CDC and all this stuff going on right now, because that, that's a whole other ballgame. Um, but like I said, in states like New York, New Jersey, these states that are very tenant friendly, Section 8 is the way to go. Because if there is an issue, you could call their caseworker. I mean, I have a, one Section 8 tenant, first of the month, she pays her portion. Her, her rent is, the government gives me 1200 she gives me 100 a month. So they pay 12 she pays 100 clean as a whistle, no issue, she pays it the first of the month. I have another lady, there's a 1300 they pay 1000 she pays 300 and I actually have to chase her down sometimes. But if it gets to the point where it did at one time, I had to chase her down for two months. We sent a notice to her caseworker and she paid right away because yeah. she runs the risk of losing Section 8. Right. That's the thing that I think people don't realize is that if a Section 8 tenant is in there, they're getting uh, assistance on their rent, right? They have to qualify for that. So if they yep. mess up, then they don't get that assistance anymore, but they get kicked out. You don't have to do it. The caseworkers do it or however, whatever that process looks like. But so they, if they have to pay up a hundred, they don't want to, they're happy to pay that hundred. They want to pay the hundred because they don't want to lose out on the other 1100 that's getting paid for them. And like you said before, if, if you get maintenance, you got to do it. If they do the inspection, honestly, as landlords and investors, that's what you should be doing anyway. If you have an investment property, that's your asset. You want to upkeep it. You want to make sure it's being taken care of and you want your tenant in there to be happy, right? You know what? You want to make sure that you're taking care of them. They're taking care of you. So bottom line is if you're doing your part, which you should be anyway, which is dealing with the maintenance issues. If they have an inspection, fix what you got to fix, do your part. The rest, the government takes care of for you. They make sure that the, your tenant stays in line and, you know, and they fund it for you. The money's in your account, you know, other than the portion that the tenant has to make up difference on, if there is any, that's the gray area, I guess. But as a whole, that section eight is actually, like you said, and it was a great way that you put it, is kind of protecting you. You do your part, the government makes sure that the tenant does their part. Yeah, and I just, it's so funny, man, because I used to go on to these web pages and listen to these people just bash Section 8 and bash this. Listen, Section 8 is never late. Section 8 is great and Section 8 is never late. I like I could show you. I could turn the camera around right now and just show you, uh, which is the first of the month, already direct deposit, fucking 6 a.m. this morning. Nah, I mean, it gets a bad rap. Yeah, you, I mean, listen, you're going to get your, I do have, I do have a Section 8 tenant that she's friggin' disgusting. I mean, they pay 95% of it. She pays, she pays 10% of her rent, not even. She pays 10% of her rent and the apartment's upside down. It's a mess. It's dirty. It's this, it's that. The end of the year came, Section 8 did their annual inspection at a building. They failed her because this was broken, that was broken. The property's cash flowing so much. You know what we did? We did the repairs immediately. We did the repairs. We sent them to Section 8. 
And at the end of the year, you write it off with your account. Hey, what's going on? Ah, we had a couple of repairs up there. We didn't really cash flow well on it. All right, well, you're not you're going to pay less in taxes. So if there's enough margin in your buildings or properties, things are going to happen. What are you going to do? It's inevitable. Yeah, you got to build that in. If the destruction is to the point where they have to get evicted, which you are allowed to do, you are by law allowed to evict them even during the coronavirus because it's, it's an interest of justice disturbance of peace, it's called or something. So people are still doing that. In this case, she just was a little rough. She beat it up. But on the other side of it, I have a Section 8 tenant. Once again, you could eat off her floors. Clean as a whistle. She's great. Pays on time. She could stay in there forever. We raised the rent this year. She didn't say a word. She keeps it in better shape than other people. She actually chases me down the first of the month. She's like, Angelo, she doesn't speak English. Hey, what's going on? I have the money. Come pick it up. Come pick it up. I'm like, ah, give me a couple of days. You're just now to the point where I, you know, we get down there, we do what it is. But like I said, the first two properties, the first two, two families, I managed them on my own. Once I grew past that because of the appraisal, I had to pull in a property. You got to pull in a property manager or you won't grow. I used to have that frigging, you know, that mindset, that small minded, ignorant mindset. You got to do everything by yourself. I mean, listen, nobody's going to take care of your shit like you, but you have to delegate at some point or you'll never grow. You'll be stuck spinning the circles all day. It can be difficult to scale otherwise. So what are you up to now portfolio wise? Like how many doors you got? I mean, is it multifamily mostly, single family? Yeah, it's multi, it's multifamily. So we have, it's over 10. Let's just put it that okay, way. Okay, no, that's cool. And you and you sell, and you outsource all the management now? First two properties I managed on my own. I bought in a property manager. And that's one thing you have to scan it, your property managers because some of them don't know what the fuck they're doing. That's a whole nother segment, property management. But the way I have it set up, I love it. My guys are really, really good. And, and some of them, one of them invests as well. So I just wanted to touch up on this. So they manage the properties and they contact me whenever there's a repair over, say, like $100. So they, I'm aware. So they manage all the phone calls, everything. I have it set up where they're doing everything, but they don't really contact me unless it's a fucking, the building's burnt. It's a catastrophe or something crazy. That's when they come to me. You know, there's sometimes there's broken doors. Hey, Angela, we have a couple of broken doors, this and this. It's going to be about this much. Here's the pictures. Okay, here, boom, done. But I don't get involved unless it's something that's like, starts getting crazy where the two tenants are fighting. One of them threw a garbage can out the window and so one of them broke their other lock and you know, then I get involved. So that's the way you, just to touch up on it, you want it to where you have some involvement, but not all the involvement. You want to know when the big stuff is happening, all the little stuff, keep it for the property manager. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're right. Cause that's, what's going to help you allow to, like you said, delegate and then be able to scale quicker because you're not spending all your time dealing with all the little details, the little minute stuff that the property manager is there to take care of for you. It's the bigger stuff when it's something that needs to be addressed, maybe a bigger ticket item or an issue, you know, that's when you get involved, but by not having to get down in the weeds with all the other stuff, you know, that's what you're outsourcing to the property manager would then freeze up your time to go scale and build your business. Uh, so that's a good point. Like I wouldn't be able to do, and I, and I saw this when I was doing, like when I was onto my, like my third bird deal, my third or fourth, I was like, you know what? I am concentrating on all the construction, imagine all the construction of this bird deal and doing the appraisal, but doing all this. And I'm taking my time away from that and doing the property management, or I'd be doing a property management and ignoring the property under construction. Yeah. So that's why you have to delegate. Right. Yeah. You want us, we don't want to spread ourselves too thin because then if we're doing too many things, we're doing probably all of them, not as good as they could be getting done. The rehab will never get done. Yeah. The rehab, you know, I started concentrating so much on a property management. I'd be like, Oh my God, I have to do an appraisal today. That's a whole other thing. But I would be like, Holy shit. I need to pick up the paint for the guy who's doing my bird. He's got to paint the whole apartment. And the guy would be like, yo, 
where's my paint? Dude, you're supposed to buy X amount of gallons. I'm like, yo, I was picking up rent at one of my apartments. So that's why yeah. you, you play by ear, see where you're at. If you get a bill, let's say one of your people listen to this, say you get a 10 unit on your first deal. You might want to manage it yourself maybe the first couple months and then outsource it and then move on to your next deal. So uh, so that's where we're at with that. But let's let's touch on the next thing about the market. Yeah, no, that was a good point. Good, very good points, though. Good stuff right there. So, yeah, from your perspective, the real estate market right now, I mean, it's been hot as people are paying top dollar for things again, kind of like you mentioned earlier back in the 2000s, what happened? Like what's going on from a, the appraiser perspective the price jumps so much and then finding those comps to support it in order for the bank to lend on it we're dealing with the three-headed monster i call it you have the list price you have the offer price the contract price and you have the appraised value so i did one yesterday in west orange new jersey it was listed for 380 the offer was at 430 my appraisal actually came in at 430 i was dead on because the listing agent had had accidentally they underlisted it because there are certain things that they didn't understand. There are certain things that go into this that could sway the appraisal in 10 different directions. I mean, that's, this could get really, they could get really complicated sometimes, the appraisal reports. I mean, people ask me, how long does it do, how long does it take to appraise a property? On average, by the time you go there, drive, pull the data, pull the zoning, pull the, all this, it's a good five hours, six hours, sometimes a multi-unit, a multi-unit home is a full eight-hour work day. To do that appraisal so the market is all over the place bro it's a mess i did a house last year chatham new jersey the guy who owned it was an attorney from new york the guy he was selling it to privately was some hedge fund guy okay guy wants to move to chatham everybody's getting out of the city during a pandemic the guy's contract price, because it was private, never on a market, contract price was 1.7 million. Every single sale on that street was 1.4 million. My comps, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I sat there for hours and hours and hours. My hours, my appraisal came in at 1.4 million. So he's an uneducated buyer and it's not on a market. So that's what happens sometimes. People, because the money's cheap and sometimes they're moving out of cities, they're so desperate to get out. They're willing to pay whatever their monthly payment looks. Oh, this monthly payment looks good. This is what we're going to do. But that's not what the numbers just aren't there. But on other cases, the numbers are there. So the market's all over the place, yeah. bro. And it's it's a mess. It's a mess. I've never seen it before. Never seen it. It makes it tough. I like what you said about the three-headed monster, the three points. You got the list price, the offer, the contract price, and then the appraised price. When things are working the way they should be, all three of those should be fairly close to one another. Like the contract price should be pretty close to what it was listed at. And then obviously the appraised value should come in pretty close. When, when one of those or those things start getting spread apart from one another, that's when you know a property is getting listed and there's so many people bidding on it that the actual contract price is way up above it. And then the appraised price might not be able to get there because it's got to match what the comps are in the, in the area to support it. So when the point is, is that when those numbers aren't all kind of jiving, that's usually when there's something out of whack. And it could work the other way too. When you have a list price and then your contract price is lower, that's when the market's tipping and going the other direction. So like the, in either yeah. case, something something's out of whack. And I think that's probably somewhat of what we're in right now. But uh, Angela, man, I could go on with you forever. I, I know we're probably getting tight on time, but the background you have and the experience, it's just a, it's, it's a, so it's a wealth of knowledge, man. I appreciate all the time you're spending with me today. Before we wrap this up, 
I did want to do our segment with our best guest. It's advice from our best guest. I'm going to ask you three questions. Question number one, for people out there that have not started investing in real estate, what's one piece of advice you could give them that they could go out and do today to help get them started? Determine which market you want to invest in. Whatever market you're, you decide you want to invest in, run all the numbers first based upon the 1% rule, whatever rules you read from the books. And if that market doesn't work, get out and go somewhere else. You know, you have a lot of people in, in certain areas, especially now in New Jersey, we're start, I'm starting to look at other states, but you had a lot of investors at one time in, in Brooklyn got so overpriced. A lot of Brooklyn investors started coming into New Jersey and they start driving that market up because they had to get out of where they are. So study, figure out where you want to invest and study the living shit out of that market. Excuse my language. But you need to literally, and if you see that the numbers aren't there, get out, go to the next one. And I mean, it has to be like the back of your hand. Like you have to study the market, study the rents, study the comps, study the streets. Don't overlook any sales. Okay. If you're doing, if you're looking to do a flip, you got to pull up every single comparable. If you have a, a four bedroom colonial that you're flipping, you better pull up every single four bedroom colonial in that entire area. Because as much as an agent's going to say, oh, these are the numbers, look at the ones that sold low because they might be your next door neighbor and the appraiser might use them when you go to flip. So I would say with determine your market, that the numbers look like they're making sense, okay? Read a book or two, whether it's flipping or cash flow, and then study that market. Like I said, the comps, the streets, the rents, the broker, you have a broker in that market or agent, everything. Yeah. Every good advice. I mean, narrow the focus because I think a lot of people can do that when they start. They don't know kind of where to start and their, their scope is too broad. And then you get bogged down and buried down. So narrow the focus, pick a market, study it, analyze it, make sure it's going to work. And if it's not, don't waste any more time to find another one. That's good advice. Move on to the next one. And it's something else I want I wanted to touch on was the um in studying your market, you know, you could read all the books and watch all the podcasts. What applies in, in Orlando, Florida? does not apply in Seattle. What applies where I'm at, where I invest in Patterson does not apply in Trenton, New Jersey, because I see investors arguing. I actually listen to these fucking conversations sometimes of them going back and forth about some guys only rent out single family residents. They buy them, fix them up, burn single family. Me? I don't want anything to do with a single family. What am I going to do with one rental income when they burn the house down or they move out? At least in my two unit, I have two of them coming in at once. But in certain areas of the country, you do not have two to four unit homes. You have to rent out to single family. In my city, it's predominantly two to four units, thank God. So that's the way to go. That's the way to invest. You go to other areas in the Midwest, for what I could pay for a four for a three unit, they could buy a 10 unit building in Cleveland or wherever. So like I said, don't whatever strategy you read about or people are talking about online is not specific to your market. So that's another piece of advice. Check out what the overwhelming majority of your market is made up of, okay? The market I'm in, guys were doing burrs like crazy on multi-units. Now they're flipping them. They're not burring them. Let me get this straight. That's another thing that's going on. The equity margin is so high that in order for them to buy a two-unit, like the one I bought was $48,000 I told you about, right? One just came on a market right across the street from me. Identical. 170 they wanted. It's going to go for 170 I paid 48 They're at 170 yeah. That has to be $85,000. So now you're at 175 plus, say, $85,000. You're into this thing for 260 
you know, once you do a cash out refinance and all that, it probably isn't going to cash flow. So now the investors are taking them and they're like, dude, I can get 375 for this. I'm into it for 260. You're making 110,000. So, so don't get it twisted. Even though you learn your market, your market could be shifting. And this is this shifted overnight, overnight, because I was burring deals. The guys I would talk to that were burring them were like, no, nah, no, nah, we're flipping them now. We're not burring them anymore. Yeah. So that's another thing. Stay on top of what the trends in your market. Those are both good points. What applies in one market doesn't necessarily apply to another market. And then pay attention to the trends in the market because real estate's a cycle. Things are always moving. They don't usually stay the same for very long. And, you know, it can change quickly. So pay attention to it and take advantage of it and don't get burned by it. So good, good advice there. Good advice. Okay. Question number two. Looking back now that you've been investing for a while, what's one thing that you might do differently that you could tell our listeners about that they could potentially avoid? What's some, one thing that you might do differently if you were to start over again? Two things. I wish I learned the whole burst strategy earlier because I would have gotten, I got my first burr in like 2005. My first flip was 15. My first burr was in 16. My first investment properties, bird deal, whatever. If I had gotten into it in 2012, 13, Forget it, bro. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw streets that were, I would drive down streets that were completely, every house was boarded up, multi-unit, three-unit, four-unit, three-unit, four-unit, boarded up all the way down. If I had known, oh my God, but don't get it twisted. There was no money there. It was a lot more difficult to get hard money. And once you refinance the money, the liquid wasn't really there. So let's not kick myself in the ass. So that's one thing. Second thing was me personally, I bought my first property was like a, short sale under market value and i was torn at the time because i was like 30 years old and i'm like oh you gotta buy a house that's the thing to do because you're not married whatever the fuck these limitations people put so i went out and bought a house because it was a short sale and i had a ton of equity but realistically what was i going to do with this my i wanted to be an investor I'm like we're we gonna fucking move in this i sold that invested the money bought a small apartment i mean moved into a small apartment that was dirt cheap took all that cash and built up the portfolio, which is worth over a million dollars, whatever now. So yeah, yeah, that yeah. it's sinking too much money into your own residence is what I did. So two things, I would have started earlier and I would have sunk all my money into a personal residence, which I end up selling, taking the cash and then flipping it. Yeah, no, good, good stuff. I, that's a common theme that comes through with that question is people saying start earlier. So for people out there listening that haven't started, that should be your cue to go out and get on it because the sooner you do, the better off you're going to be. And then the second one too, it's, a, it's a, that's about making sacrifices, right? Like you could either have what do you want? Do you want to be an investor? Do you want to build your wealth and your net worth? Or do you want to have a comfortable house, you know, a, a nice big house so you can impress your friends or whatever? Like it's about sacrifices for you. You know, you realize the big house wasn't as important to you as what you know you'd be able to have in the future if you took that money and started investing in real estate. Yeah, 100%. And that's one thing I want to touch on. It's probably going to start an argument because this is one thing that Robert Kiyosaki goes by. I, and I hate to say, I hate to break people's hearts, but the home in which you live in is not an investment. Your HOA and taxes, if you're in it for two years, ate up so much of the difference. You actually lost money. You're better off renting. Yeah, it is. Like you said, you either you either live with that in your means or you're out over your means or you extend to the limit of your means. But if you can scale that back and make some sacrifices and take that money and invest it, it's going to be a much better investment in the long run as opposed to trying to use your primary residence as an investment. Exactly. So let's go back to what you're saying. I sold my first one, which was like a primary, moved it to a small apartment. People thought I was fucking nuts. And I'm like, dude, I, I know my numbers in and out. I bought that first house for 48000 I was into it for one thirty-five. It now appraises, just got the appraisal done at 315. And the second one I bought, 
appraises for 375. So I moved into an apartment and turned whatever was a hundred into seven hundred, you know, yeah. over seven hundred grand just off those first two. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And if you had just stayed in the house, where would you be now as opposed to if taken that different path? And you know what that's done from you from not just a cash flow perspective, but network. Yeah. Exactly. I, I would have been stuck. I would have been, I just, I, it, my whole life would have been different. I'm telling yeah. you, it would have been a hundred hours a week. Try, it just, the investment strategy, it, it, it helps so much, man. There's so many ways in life, so much. I probably wouldn't even have, you know, married or kids because I'd be like, yo, I don't have that second income, you know? So that that's, we could get into all the stuff, but go ahead on your other question. Absolutely. A good way of your, the way you're putting all this is great stuff. I think a lot of people can relate out there. Okay. Well, question number three, do you have a, you mentioned it earlier, actually, but a book recommendation for our, our listeners out there, a good read or something that they might be able to get some good information out of? hundred percent. Yeah. So I was telling you before, um, I have two books, people. Well, let's start from the start. Let's start from the very beginning. When I was taking community college, somebody gave me Robert Kiyosaki's book. Everybody knows that. I mean, it's like saying, it's like saying, what is the Bible in a church? Yeah. So I, I had that. Everybody just to get your mindset. If you're new, new, but brand new, you read that book by Robert Kiyosaki. But my most important was the section eight Bible and section eight is great. Because I knew the price point to buy in my area, I had to go into the ghetto in order to make the money and cash flow properly and also be protected because I was guaranteed my rent versus going up against a state that's just has the craziest fucking rent control laws in the nation is New Jersey, New York, and I don't know, some other city. So I knew that that was the route I was starting on a burst strategy it was to buy them low and get them the cash flow. And I, that's what I did. So section eight, it would be Kiyosaki. Section eight is great. And the section eight Bible, which is key. Awesome. Good stuff, man. Great recommendations there. This whole interview has been awesome. You've been, like I said, it's been, you're a ton of, you got a ton of knowledge and experience that brings, you can bring to the table from all different aspects of investing in real estate. Uh, for our listeners out there that want to learn more about you or connect with you, how can our listeners out there find out more? Contact me or follow me on Instagram at real estate underscore info. That's real estate underscore info. And I'm always trying to put content up with, because I'm at this all day. I get up in the morning, it's appraising all day. I was up to 1 a.m. last night reading about apartment buildings. I mean, you just, once you start the momentum going, you don't stop. You're like, fuck it. I'm looking at this. I'll look at that. You just got to get the ball rolling and see where it's at. But you also have to be patient. You know, like on your first flip when you're like, I want this thing to close because I can't. So that's a way. But yeah, I'll be putting content on that Instagram page. And I hate being a no. Listen, there's so many people who know more than me, but there are two things I would tell people to watch out for. Be careful with these very, very big investment courses that are asking for twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 because you're going to blow through all your fucking money. You can learn more by following the right people, reading the right books, learning your market. And the last thing is going to a local real estate investment. You know what they would charge for a meeting? $35, $35. You go there, you hang out, you meet people. They give you food. I mean, you can't beat it. If you get in with the right Bria, you could spend a quarter, less than a quarter of the money on, on all these big courses and classes. And another piece of advice is don't take anybody's fucking advice because there's a very, very big investor that's on Instagram. He's probably the biggest one. I'm not going to mention his name. And he was bashing people that buy two to four unit homes. And I'm thinking like, all right, that's great and all. But my mentor who 
is on pace to be probably worth more than him and owns fucking enormous amounts of real estate. I mean, he's a very big name. He started with one, two family in the ghetto, one, two family on a street that nobody even wanted to walk down. He started with one, two family, and now he's up to over 2000 units. So you can't even listen. Single family's not for me. I'm like, yo, fuck single family. I don't want it. It's not for me because that doesn't work in my area. That works in other areas. I heard so guys, um, he's got a good book also I read. Let me just touch that. David, um, out of state real estate investing. Yeah, yeah, David Green. David Green. Yeah. I think from the best of my knowledge, he has single families in Jacksonville, Florida, because that's what Jacksonville, Florida has. All single families and then probably apartment buildings. So, like I said, you got to be really careful with telling somebody who's telling you one way or the other because every single market has a market within a market. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. Like you said, you got to be careful what you see on online, Instagram. I mean, there's a lot of good people out there doing a lot of good things, a lot of investors sharing their stories. But what you're seeing and what they may be advising, I think the point you're making is that might be working for them because that's what works in their market. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you and in your market. So that's a good word of advice there, word to be cautious to our listeners out there. You got to stay somewhere. And, you know, let's just say his name is GC. Everybody knows who he is. And I think he's very smart. Very smart. I follow him, GC. He was bashing like, oh, 16 units or more, 16 units or more. What the hell is the purpose of buying a property if it's not six? Whatever. The guy I know who is now building and other guys I know who now have 16, who have 30 unit buildings, 40 unit buildings, they started with the small one. They flipped that single family. They flipped that two unit, took that cash and put it into the big building. So, you know, I'm not going to disagree with certain people are saying, I get what they're saying, but you got to just, if the profits and numbers are there, just fucking take it around. Start somewhere. It's going to allow you to at least scale. So, I mean, yeah, 100%. Just get going on what works for you, even if it is small, right? Just, just get out there, take action, make it happen. 100%. Angelo, this has been awesome, man. I really appreciate all the time that you spent with me today. Like I've said, you know, you've got so much experience from so many different aspects of real estate investing, the perspective that you bring from the, you know, the appraisal side, the, the investing side. I mean, I could sit here and talk with you all day, but I do appreciate the time. I hope maybe we can get you back sometime. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about the appraisal side of things. I know the investors out there listening, probably really curious about you know, what they can do to, to better come up with ARVs and things like that. But uh, we'll save that one for another show. But I do appreciate it. I want to make sure all of our listeners definitely go check out real estate uh, underscore info on Instagram. And I'm going to include that link down in the show notes below. So all of our listeners out there that want to connect with Angelo, uh, just scroll down. You'll be able to find that link. Go check him out. He's, he's sharing a lot of awesome content. He's got a lot of great info that he's putting out there. So uh, Angelo, this has been awesome, man. I really do appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck in 2021 and beyond. Yes, likewise. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Man. And I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Angelo as much as I did. Like I said before, he's got a ton of experience, ton of knowledge, brings a different perspective to the real estate investing community as he is an appraiser. So I got a lot out of that, uh, that interview. I hope you guys did as well. So that's it for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Of course, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and, and leaving a review and rating definitely helps us out. As always, I'm your host, Travis Murphy, and thanks for tuning in to the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us on the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. Be sure to join the investnest.com and start learning and earning today.